who have been redeemed understand that our sin is written in his wounds and by his stripes we are healed. If you have a little one up through grade four and you'd like them to be in children's church downstairs, you can dismiss them right now. Amy's leading them out. And if you'd like them to stay with you, please feel free to do that as well. Like you, if you would, to turn in your copy of God's Word to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12, and, uh, and join with me. We're going to be reading, starting in verse 12, we're going to go all the way through the end of the chapter. That's our new section, and so we're going to enjoy our time together today as we, as we uh, dig into the Word of God. Begin up in verse 12. Now, when I come to you, well, I'm not, okay, I'm sorry. I had it marked correctly. I'm starting in chapter 2, my bad. All right, here we go, verse, verse 12. I'm like, that is not what I studied. For our, <laughs> that's like something you dream at night, you know, like you study one thing, you get up here, and, you, and then your notes are something else. All right, pastor's dreams, okay, you don't, you don't have to worry about that. Okay, for, for our proud confidence is this. The testimony of our conscience that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world, and especially toward you, for we write nothing else to you than what you read and understand, and I hope you will understand until the end. Verse 14, just as you also partially did understand us, that we are your reason to be proud as you also are ours in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. In this confidence, I intended at first to come to you so that you might twice receive a blessing, that is, to pass your way into Macedonia and again from Macedonia to come to you and by you to be helped in my journey to Judea. Therefore, verse 17, I was not vacillating when I intended to do this, was I? Oh, what I purpose, do I purpose according to the flesh, so that with me there will be yes, yes and no, and me, and, and me at the same time. But as God is faithful, our word to you is not yes and no, but verse 19, the Son of God, Christ Jesus, who was preached among you by us, by me and Silvanus and Timothy, was not yes and no, but is yes in him. Verse 24, as many as are the promises of God in him, they are yes, therefore also through him is our amen to the glory of God through us. Verse 21. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God, who also sealed us and gave us the spirit in our hearts as a pledge. Verse 23. But I call God as witness to my soul that to spare you I did not come again to Corinth. Verse 24. Not that we lord it over your faith, but our workers with you for your joy, for in your faith you are standing firm. Let's stop right there. As we look at that new section, we see the same old issues come up, don't we? We see the same old undercurrents. We're going to see some of that today. I think it'll be uh, very helpful for you to see that, but we see Paul dealing with it in a little bit different way. Back in the early or the late 80s and the early 90s, Car manufacturers came up with a vehicle voice warning system. Some of you probably remember that when you bought a late 80s and 90s automobile. Maybe some of you younger folk who that was your first car, some beater that still was reminding you, you know, your seatbelt is not fastened. Remember that? It was a vocal warning system. Um, or your fuel level is low. 
It was kind of novel at first, but that didn't last very long. It soon became very annoying. Uh, one thing it didn't do was suggest possible outcomes. I always thought that was funny that, you know, if, if it says your seatbelt's not fastened or, or uh, it could say, and driving without your seatbelt could result in serious injury or death. I mean, if you put that in there, that probably might help you put your seatbelt on. Or, you know, your fuel level is low and driving with low fuel levels could result in an unplanned hike or failure to make an appointment. It didn't go as far as it needed to go. I mean, if it was going to, it was going to remind us, let's remind us and tell us why it was important. And the voice obviously told us what it needed to know, but before long you were looking for ways to turn the voice off. And you want to know where that wire was and you're going to cut that speaker. And so you don't want to hear that anymore. In some ways it was like conscience of the individual. It, um, when working correctly, you know, it makes direct observations and suggestions concerning the circumstances, uh, you know, in the automobile, much like the conscience makes direct observations and suggestions. And automakers have moved, um, two other warning delivery systems. Now we have a vehicle that has a digital messaging system. And so a message icon will pop up and you're like, oh yeah, you know, kind of like, uh, hey, you know, like an email or a text or a Snapchat or something. So you click on it and then it says, you know, your right front tire is low on air or, you know, time for an oil change or whatever. So it just gives you a message. Um, if you drive a, a Honda with factory navigation, maybe some of you can correct me, but a friend of ours, his Honda, whenever it comes close to a dealership, will say, uh, left turn into the dealership. It will suggest that you just go in and visit, you know, just for a friendly $200 whatever. So, um, so now instead of messages, if you've noticed that a lot of car commercials now, now it's a self-correct automobile. So you start to drift out of your lane. It gives you this up, heads up type of get over and that kind of nudges the steering wheel and gets you back in your lane. You know, it'll automatic brake for you. You know, if you're looking down and at your, at your phone, like I passed somebody the other day, they actually had their phone like right here and they were driving. You know, and uh, you know, if, you're, if you're doing that and you're not stopping soon enough, it'll put the brakes on, keep you from crashing in. You know, so, so I, I think that's interesting because it, it comes into an age of, uh, of a culture that has largely attempted to turn off the conscience or ignore it. So now the, the, the warnings are more than warnings. Now they're actually doing it for you to make sure that you do it. And I use that illustration really to move in this first topic that Paul brings up sort of in passing, but he uses his conscience. If you saw that right at the beginning, he uses his conscience as proof of his integrity and his sincerity and his ministry to the Corinthians. Did you see that? He says, I boast in my conscience. And there's a lot of weight, I think, put on something that we perhaps don't think too often about. But obviously, according to Paul, uh, the conscience is a very important and a very powerful thing. Paul has a lot to say about it in his letters. We're going to look at some of that in just a few minutes as we introduce this next session. But a great place to start looking at the conscience is Romans 2. Romans 2.14, and Paul is talking about the unredeemed here, and he's making an observation that helps the reader understand how God can judge each person fairly, but he says some important things about conscience, I think, that establish the beginning of a, of a uh, foothold, if you will, or a foundation. Verse 420 says, for when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves. And so when you read that, you think, well, how could they do that, Paul? I mean, how is that possible that they um, do the law even though they don't have it and they become a law to themselves? And he explains it, verse 15, he says, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience, there it is, bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. And so as we pick up in verse 14 there, uh, we can see that God can judge unredeemed people in a number of ways. But one of the ways he can do it is according to their behavior. And now we won't spend any time here, but we'll just make a point or two. 
Obviously, then, conscience isn't just something that a redeemed person has, because Paul's calling on his. Everyone who's ever lived has a conscience. And according to verse 15 that we just read, this conscience is informed by a moral law that God has put on the heart of every single person. Now let that sink in for a minute, okay? That the Lord in his graciousness has stamped his law on the heart of every single person. Because we're talking about unredeemed people here, okay? And that doesn't surprise us, does it? Because God is absolutely fair, isn't he? I mean, he's not, vindic- he's not vindictive. He takes no delight in the death of a wicked person, but that that person come to salvation. So we understand that, that God is this kind of God. But, and, and Paul says he stamped it on their heart, and they follow it regularly. So there is a certain behavior or behaviors that everyone does, and when they do it, that proves that God has placed in them understanding. It's seen in every culture, varying from culture to culture. The behavior shows a law. And I won't give an exhaustive list, but for instance, paying debts. Most people believe that they should pay what they owe and that people who don't do that are bad. Um, honor parents. Many believe that parents should be honored, and when you don't honor parents, that's wrong. Uh, unredeemed people understand this, mostly. Uh, some love their wives and remain faithful, and that, in general, across cultures, seems to be the indicating that God has put a law, his own law, on the hearts of individuals. Some think lying and stealing are wrong, and those who do it should be punished. That's just a general law, perhaps, from uh, in cross cultures. Not all of them, but most of them, and God has stamped that. Some think it's wrong to kill, and you shouldn't kill, and those who kill should be punished. And some uh, feed and take care of the less fortunate, and take care of the sick, and defend the weak, and look for justice, and those kinds of things. See, um, we, we call that, in, in modern society, those who do those kinds of things who are unredeemed, they believe the noble lie. They, they, somehow their, 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 uh, uh, their lives are going to matter and that what they're going to do is going to continue. And, but the fact of the matter is, is that there is a law God has stamped on the heart of every individual who's ever lived, and that law uh, witnesses to that person. And, you know, there's lots of numerous things like that. It's a universal code of behavior. Sometimes it's warped, but you'll see it nonetheless. Now, you can think of it like this, in, in re, it's relative human good. That's how you can think, it's, it's, sometimes we use the word bad good. It's, it's uh, not righteous good, it's not good towards God, or good as to give God glory. They have a man type of good, a man type of conduct, and, and Paul says in, in that they show the work of the law uh, written on their hearts. Um, and then he, we get our word that we're looking at today that Paul uses here in our first uh, verse of our new section, their conscience bearing witness. That's the noun sunidasis, which means to know along with. Now, that's interesting that to know along with, and along with who? Well, if we look at it in context, then it's a, it's a co-knowledge with oneself. It's a conscience and then a law, and it's a co-knowledge with those two things. And so it appears that a simple definition of conscience is a thought process that argues with the host thinker. So that's a process that's going on in everyone everywhere to some extent. Now, we're, there's ways that that can be seared and dumbed down and crushed, and we're going to see that in just a minute. But in general, that's how everyone is born into the world. And the conscience responds to the internal norm uh, that is in there, and, and initially it is God's law stamped on the heart. And so, now we're not talking about this yet, but for a believer, and certainly for Paul, uh, it is compounded because we have the natural conscience 
enhanced by the indwelling word of Christ, which is really the witness of the Holy Spirit, and this conscience that bears witness creates this dialogue then between the host thinker and the conscience that's there that the Lord has given to argue. And Paul actually says that in verse 15. He says, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. And so there's this argument going on constantly between the conscience and the person. And, and there's some thinking patterns at work here. There's within each person an ability to think through why something is right or why something is wrong, uh, both with their own actions and the actions of someone else. They have an ability to say, we can excuse that, but we can't excuse this, and this is okay, and this is not okay, and all of that stuff. And there are lots of places where Paul talks about his conscience, and we're going to see some of them in the next few weeks, but we see him refer to it in Acts chapter 23 and verse 1 and 2. Now, if Paul is defending himself, this is a very common uh, defense that Paul uses. You're going to see it several times. We're going to see why it's important here in just a minute as we build this understanding of conscience. But Paul is looking at the council. This is the council of the Jews who are questioning him about uh, his conduct. And Paul looks intently at the council, said, Brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. Now, we just pause right there. Wouldn't you like to be able to say that? I mean, that's an amazing statement, isn't it? Wouldn't you like to be the case at the end of your life that you can say, uh, you know, Lord, help me to be able to say, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God right up until now. But just to give you an idea, verse 2 tells us what the Jews thought about this statement from Paul. The high priest Ananias commanded those standing beside him to strike him on the mouth. So did they believe it? Not a bit. They think that he's violated his conscience, he's violated the Lord's law and all of that, and that's why he's even there. But Paul says, I live a life free of an accusing conscience. We see him mention his conscience again in Acts 24, verse 16. So he says, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience before, uh, both before God and before men. Paul says, it's of utmost importance that, although I may be accused of many things, when it comes down to it, nothing can stick because I strive to live my life where men can see and where God can see in blamelessness. Paul said, that's important to me and that's what I have done. So obviously we see it's quite a bit more important perhaps to Paul than it is uh, perhaps in the modern church. We probably don't think about that that much, but I think it's super important. And so we're going to see why and how we can make sure that's the case here in a little bit. So again, can you say that? Could you say that? Would it be great to be able to say that? That I do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience before both uh, before God and before men. In Romans chapter 9, verse 1, Paul is defending his right attitude towards his countrymen, and he says this of himself. Again, he says, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. I'm not lying, Paul says. Well, we believe you, Paul. We don't trust ourselves most of the time, but if you say you're not lying, you're not lying. And uh, this is how serious the situation is for Paul and for the nation of Israel and how they perceive Paul. So he says, my conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. The conscience is that little voice that all of us have, that internal warning system uh, that must always be verified by the scriptures and to be trusted must be controlled by the Holy Spirit and informed by the word of God. And so we understand that's how that's going to work. Okay. And that's always the dynamic that's going on in Paul. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. So who's testifying along with Paul's conscience? The Holy Spirit is. The conscience is a tool, and Paul says that his is being controlled by the Holy Spirit. So Paul is doing the speaking, but Christ, the Holy Spirit, and Paul's conscience are all involved in this process. So it makes Paul's statement very emphatic. He's speaking the truth. 
And so back in Romans 2.15, where Paul says that men have this innate awareness of God's law, and they have this warning system that activates when they choose to ignore or disobey that law, that thought process then, as we see Paul on, the, on this positive side, where it's reinforced by the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, and informed by those things, and so his mind and his conscience are having this agreement that this is what the Word of God says, and this is how I'm going to act, and so I'm going to do this thing, there's another way for it, to, for it to be. That thought process that argues with the host thinker, that warning system, as we said before, can be desensitized and eventually silenced. Paul says it to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, but the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons, verse 2, by means of hypocrisy of liars, here it is, mark this, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. So something else is going on here that wasn't going on in Paul's life. So here the host thinker is informing his thoughts. Not from faith, though, but deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. So his thoughts are being informed differently than Paul's are. He's listening to the voices of the world, and he's listening to the world's system, and he's listening to the culture and the voice of the culture, and Paul calls them liars. These voices, he says, are liars. They could be false teachers, they could be cultural icons, they could be the voices of the media, they, they could be any number of things. But anyway, as the host thinker informs his thoughts with lies, the conscience then, see the conscience is still there, immediately will trigger because each person who has ever lived has the law of God engraved on their conscience and so it will be initially arguing against this information. Okay, so the lies are coming in and the person is listening to the lies and the conscience is arguing with initially that information but at, as it is routinely ignored it's disregarded because of the false truth that hypocrisy that that's the word uh, for a stage player actually in in the greek it, it's playing a part uh, hypocrisy is the word for stage player so pretending then that the lies they're stating are true so we we see that in our culture don't we they're saying lies and they believe them but really, they're just playing a part, aren't they? Because they're playing the part that Satan and his demons want them to play in order to deceive as many as possible. So understand, when you hear a lie coming from someone, from a cultural icon, from the media, from, from the government, or where, wherever, or from the pulpit, okay, if it's a lie, then realize they're playing a part. It's hypocrisy. It's a stage player. And, and those lies are coming, and they're being stated as true, and the one listening in becomes convinced, and the actions the conscience spoke against are done, so the conscience is saying, no, don't do that, that's a lie, no, don't do that, and they're done anyway, and so the conscience becomes seared. Cauteriazo, that's where we get our word cauterize. The conscience becomes cauterized to render insensitive, and in this way, it says, by, as with an iron, but it's the word also used of leprosy. Did you know that? They, they, the, the nerves are no longer sensitive to what's going on, so damage occurs on a regular basis. That's why people lost limbs because they couldn't feel that they were getting burned or that it was getting run over or it was being pinched or whatever it was or the blood was cut off. You couldn't, under, you couldn't feel that, and so it was desensitized. So that's the word we, we have for that. But here, Paul says it's with a, an intense heat, and the idea here would be that by ignoring, catch this, by ignoring and going against these nerve responses of their conscience, so that's the illustration, they no longer feel its responses, and that's a scary place to be. And so the conscience then is seared. It's no longer saying things that anybody's listening to. The host thinker's not listening anymore, and the conscience is then seared, and it's no longer responding like it should. Now, that explains a lot for us, doesn't it? So we wonder, wow, how could somebody do this, or somebody, how could somebody do that? Well, you just realize over a process of time, when the lies are being fed in, 
and the conscience initially is responding, no, lie, 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 not right, not right, not right, wrong to kill, wrong to murder, wrong, all that kind of stuff, see, and then we're ignoring that, ignoring that, ignoring that, and doing those actions anyway, eventually that conscience becomes seared, and so it's not triggering when it should. It, it's worse. It gets worse. Ephesians 4.17, look at this one. Paul says this, so this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk. And here it is, he's going to describe how they walk. Here, here's how the Gentiles walk. So these are ones who have, they had the word of the Lord stamped on their heart. They had the conscience then bearing witness of that law as true, okay? And so um, they walk, don't walk like the Gentiles also walk. Here it is, in the futility of their mind. Mataratos, matayotes, I'm sorry. Matayotes is a different word. Matayotes. We have seen this word before. It's empty of appropriate things. So uh, the opposite one would be a ship fully equipped. You remember we talked about that? A ship fully equipped for a journey. This is the opposite. Some, there's nothing that's needful is on there. Okay, so it's absent of all the things that are needful. So futility, uh, matayotes, empty of appropriate things. Why are they like this? Verse 18, being darkened, being darkened. Romans 1 tells us, you remember this, I'm sure, that men turn away from the knowledge of the truth, willfully ignorant, and their foolish heart is, what's the next part? They turn away from the knowledge of the truth, their foolish heart is darkened, okay? So when people turn away from the knowledge of the truth, they turn away from the, the word of the Lord stamped on, the law of the Lord stamped on their heart, uh, their foolish heart is darkened, in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. Uh, that's the word porosis. That is the word covering with a callus. So in other words, they have a dark heart because they have turned away from the knowledge of the truth, and, and the ignorance is that is in them because of the hardest porosis, that's the covering with a callus of their heart. Verse 19, and they having become callous, so here in the English, they kind of mix the words up here. It's not as good as you perhaps might want it. The hardness is the word porosis. That's the word callous, okay? But the, the word um, callous here, apalgao, that's where we get our word apathetic. A better word would be, so their, hard, their heart is hard and they become apathetic. They, uh, that's where we get our word to be past feeling. They don't care anymore. It, it doesn't matter anymore to them. And have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity and greediness. Now, again, we have this clash of the conscience with futile thoughts that are void of appropriateness, okay? And so a conversation is happening within this host thinker, and because of the willful ignorance of the knowledge of God, there is a callus developed where the conscience is constantly creating friction, see, and ignoring the conscience over time creates this callus where the host thinker can no longer feel the friction of a violated conscience. And that leads to apathy. See, I don't care anymore. I've got a callus there. The conscience can no longer make me feel this. You instrument players who play stringed instruments, you know on the ends of your fingers, sometimes hard to feel stuff because over time you get this huge callus on there and you can do a whole bunch of stuff to that finger without realizing you're doing some damage initially, right? And anywhere you have a callus, okay? You understand how that works. Well, there's a callus there where the, the conscience was in friction with the actions, and now you, don't longer, you no longer feel it. And that practice continues. At some point, eris, they give themselves over, paradidomi, we, we've seen this, this word before, to deliver over to custody or to deliver over for sentencing. So there's this, this practice continues, and so they're given over to sensual, sensuality, aslegia, that has the word, that's shamelessness. They're given over to shamelessness. So as the callus develops, it's thicker and thicker. The conscience no longer is, is triggering a response because it's been callous. There's the hardest callous. Conscience can't get through, make a, make a response, whatever. So they're given over to this shamelessness. In ancient times, it referred to unchecked promiscuousness 
or acting like an animal would. That's how they would describe how an animal would act, with no conscience and no restraint, just whatever an animal wants to do, that's what an animal does, see? So against this is the conscience being desensitized, ignored, or disabled, much like we wanted to do with the reminders of those early 90s cars. Okay, we just got tired of hearing it, we just wanted to cut the wire here because of a number of things in the host thinker where they're ignoring this conscience uh, and they're responding opposite of the way conscience wants. Either the conscience is seared so it no longer you no longer feel uh, anything that it's doing and it's not sensitized anymore, or there's a callus there where the conscience was friction against the action and no longer you feel it. And so here, given over to how an animal would act or just whatever it is you want to do, it's not, it's not triggering anymore. See? So I think you can read the news and you can easily say, okay, this is how, this, how can a person go somewhere and do this to another person, it just seems so beyond conscience. Yes, it is. Their conscience is either seared or there's a callus on their heart where the conscience was, had friction there and they're not feeling that anymore, see? There's no trigger anymore about what not to do. So the conscience, obviously a very valuable tool the Lord has provided and the last thing we wanna do is turn it off or sear it, or create calluses where there has been friction between our thoughts and our actions and the prompting of our conscience, see? And so I thought it was appropriate then to take a few minutes and kind of lay this foundation in our introduction to this next section of Paul's letter and establish really a biblical footing for our understanding of conscience because it's so important. Because Paul, in defending his sincerity and his integrity in this Corinthian church, calls on his conscience among, you know, just not in just the Corinthian church, but among other, many other places, he calls on his conscience as part of his defense. Paul tells the Corinthian church, draw on your memory of all that I had to do in order to guide this church, and whatever your thoughts may be about that, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.12, our new section, for our proud confidence, he says, is this, the testimony of our conscience. That's how he leads off. He doesn't go through a whole list of things he's done. He just says, listen, our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially, he says, toward you. In other words, Paul says, we've lived the way we were supposed to live, so we have a clear conscience. In everything that I've done, we've done it with a clear conscience. And you can pick out some of the issues we, he knew were still there and circulating because he mentions them kind of in general. Paul's sinful, right? That's why he says, you know, Paul's hiding something. He says, no, he says that in holiness, Paul's not sinful, but that's what's in the church. Paul's sinful, no, in holiness. Paul isn't genuine. Paul says godly sincerity. So this, the, the rumor there is Paul's not genuine. He's got an agenda of some kind. Something's up with Paul. See, Paul is a false teacher. Paul says, no, in wisdom, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God. So it's not that Paul, and catch this, see, it's not that Paul didn't sin. It's just that he responded to the promptings of the Holy Spirit. His conscience was constantly being informed by the word of God. And so he would follow the warning systems of his conscience. And so he could say then, I have confidence that I dealt with you in the right way. My conscience is clear. He didn't want to turn his conscience off, cover it with calluses or sear it. He wanted it to be fully operational, and he relied on it. And it, it's a wonderful gift, see, that God has given every individual, and Paul wanted his fully deployed. Paul says, you know, you think I'm a sinner? You know, you, you think I'm not genuine, that I've got some agenda, or I'm deceiving you in some way? You think I'm a false teacher? You know, listen, my conscience tells me 
the opposite of those things. So who's Paul believing? That's a pretty bold statement, isn't it? And, and that's how he starts the paragraph. He says, I have proud confidence. And those two words are actually one word in the Greek that actually means I boast. So proud confidence kind of smooths it over a little bit. When people say I boast, sometimes we think that's wrong. Well, in the scriptures, there's places where boasting is wrong. And there's places where boasting is okay. And so here's one of those where it's okay. Paul says, I, I have proud confidence, perhaps Timothy, Titus, certainly Sylvanus that we saw there at the end of the passage. Um, that's the us or our, our proud confidence. We can boast in our conscience. It's clear. See, obviously, as we noted at the beginning of this letter, Paul knows there are still undercurrents and lingering problems here. Titus has been here, right? And Paul worried about Titus and, and he went to meet him and all that kind of stuff. We understand how that worked and Paul was waiting to go back to see them again. And so he knows there's still undercurrents of lingering problems. People had some accusations against him. He, he knows there, anytime criticism comes, it always brings others in. And they're always kind of lingering doubts in the minds of those that are on the periphery. They're kind of watching to see, so is he really like this? Is this what he really does? You know, that kind of thing. So, you know, doubts create doubts amongst a lot of people. So he knows that this is the issue. So Paul says, I have proud, we have proud confidence. You know, think of a few chapters from now. I mean, look at this. We haven't even got here yet. It, Paul's quoting the church in Corinth. He says, for they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech is contemptible. That's nice. That's the church. Some in the church speaking about Paul. So you know when some say that, there's always others that get kind of drawn into, the, well, there's got to be some truth there, right? When there's, you know, there's you know, smoke, there's fire. There's got to be some problems, right? And so Paul's like, we have proud confidence. And that's some of the nicer things that they said that we're going to look at. So Paul says, you know, you may say all of that. You may say I'm a sinner. You may say I'm a deceiver. You, say, you think I'm a false teacher. But my conscience says otherwise, and it trumps your opinion. And this is not the first time Paul's had to say this. Just like there are questions from this church, uh, they want to, and they want to disregard Paul's authority over them. Just a few verses from where we are in verses 23 and 24. Paul says, I call God as witness to my soul. So we have a very similar parallel statement uh, that to spare you, I did not come again to Corinth. Not that we lorded over your faith, but our workers with you for your joy, for in your faith, you're standing firm. Paul's affirming he has the right to come. He could have come. He could have corrected them again face to face. He didn't come, though. And he calls on God as his witness. And catch this, this is a continuing problem. And, and to understand how Paul informs his conscience and how he evaluates his ministry, we have to look back and, you know, and, and can see uh, why Paul can say he has a clean conscience and Paul has confidence to boast. We have to look back at 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1 through 6. And this is a really excellent passage. And this is the first time Paul really gets into it with the Corinthian church. Paul's giving them a heads up, if you will. And so Paul says this. As he's just getting into the difficulties of the church and he's listening to all the criticism and all, he's coming up against that wall of, of difficulty there where people are resisting him, he just says this. And they have all kinds of expectations of him. I want you to do this. I want you to do that. And here's what you need to be doing as a pastor. And you should be doing this. And this is what Peter did. And this is what you should be doing. And this is what Apollos is going to do. And all, you know, it's just like this big mess. You know, these guys have different gifts and different abilities. But, you know, Paul has to do what, you know, somebody else did. This is what Jesus did because I walked with Jesus and whatever. Okay. And so there's this whole big mess. And so Paul says, listen, okay, here's the deal. Let a man regard us in this manner. As servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, 
It's required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. But to me, it's a very small thing that I may be examined by you or any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself, for I am, catch this, okay, catch this. Uh, this is, I mean, you talk about throwing gas on a fire, okay? I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted, but the one who examines me is the Lord. Paul just says, I don't care what you say. I'm not listening to that. I'm conscious of, no, of none of these things against myself, yet I'm not acquitted by that, that just because I'm not conscious of anything. Paul's very humble. He says, I'm not acquitted just because I'm not conscious, but the one who examines me is the Lord. And Paul's point to start with here as it relates to how he should be evaluated as a pastor is really, catch this, the way they should see the criteria for how he can evaluate his own conscience. This is the baseline, okay? When Paul says, I have proud confidence in what I've done, Paul's calling back to their memory exactly what he said, how they should regard him, see? And he'll come around to this again in our current study. We won't comment on this right now, but look, look at this wording. This is very similar to what we just saw, and we're going to go back to 1 Corinthians 4 in a minute. But 2 Corinthians 3, 1, Paul says this, Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need as some letters of commendation to you or from you? Do we have to establish this whole relationship thing again? And we have to establish who we are and who you are? And, you know, we have to be referred to you by somebody and all that kind of stuff? Is this where we are? You, he says, are our letter. You represent what we've done. Written in our hearts. Known and read by all men being manifested that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such confidence we have through Christ towards God. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant. So Paul's just reminding them of what he said in 1 Corinthians 4.1. He just says this, let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Listen, we have accomplished this in you. You're the letter. Obviously, your growth, some people come to faith, you know, other people moving into ministry, all that kind of stuff proves that what we've done among you is right and we have this clear conscience. So let's look more clearly at Paul's criteria. So Paul says, let a man regard us in this manner. As servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Four key words in the passage that Paul has to continue to repeat to the church. Okay, But this is where um, Paul is going to find his baseline when he says, I have operated among you with a clear conscience. Here's where that criteria is found. Paul says, regard us, logizomai, present middle imperative. Paul says to the church, this is going to be required of you. Stop thinking, stop criticizing this way. You've been using your own criteria in some way to evaluate what we've done among you. Paul says, this is the way you're going to need to do it. I'm going to give you the distinctiveness of one who leads the church, and this is how I evaluate my, myself, so evaluate me this way. And I have a clear conscience that I've served you this way. How? First one, servants of Christ. Servants of Christ. Huperetes. That's the first word that helps us and helps the church understand correctly their evaluation of Paul. Paul says, if I've come to you and I have, I can boast of a clear conscience, it's because I have served you as a servant of Christ. That is the word literally that means galley slave. I am a galley slave. I'm a, here it is, under rower, below decks, on the oar, pulling, okay? There's not a lot of dignity in that term, okay? 
I'm an under rower. Servant of Christ, that's that first distinction. Paul says, I have served you with a clear conscience. I can boast in a clear conscience, but not because I did everything you wanted me to do, but because I did exactly what I was supposed to do, okay? Here's the first one. Regard me in this way, okay? Paul says, this is imperative, in the imperative. This is how you're going to have to look at it. Service of Christ, that's that first distinction. 2 Corinthians 3 says, God made them adequate to be servants. Not that we've accomplished anything in ourselves, but we're adequate by the Lord to be servants. That's the first distinction as a servant of God, see? And of the new covenant, servant of the new covenant, as it said in verse 3. Paul knew that when he served Christ, that was the best way he could serve the people. That's how he evaluated himself. Luke, Luke 1, uh, 1 and 2 says that um, they called the apostles servants of the word. And there's that same word, an under rower, again, a galley slave of the word. In other words, if the idea is that whatever was cooked in the word, handed to the galley slave and delivered to the master. He didn't, he didn't mess it up. He didn't add any ingredients as it was going out the door, whatever, you know. That's the idea, see. So it defines even better for those who serve as pastors. Why? Because to serve Christ is to know his word. And as a galley slave, it's to take it just like it was given and pass it on. You can't serve him without serving his word, for his word is the revelation of his will. And, and his commands are here, so you just pass it on, see. That's how it works. So when Jesus called Paul... On the Damascus Road, that's a, the exact word he used for Paul. According to Paul, as he's telling, uh, uh, I think, Festus, he says, I have, he says, this is what Christ said. Jesus said to me, I have appeared to you to appoint you as, here it is, minister, huperetes, a galley slave, and a martos, a, a martyr, a witness. And Paul uses the word here in the Corinthians, uh, to the Corinthians to refer to himself. And you get the perspective. See, here it is, okay? Nobody gets glory for doing what they're told to do, right? You just get in trouble for not doing it. So a man who preaches because God's called him isn't worthy of any special honor just because he's preaching. He's just worthy of dishonor if he doesn't do it like he's supposed to, see? And we'll get back to that in a minute because there's more specific words that have to do with that in a second. The third key here, the third key word, and the second word used to describe how Paul evaluated his job 1 Corinthians 4.1, he says this. He says, um, let a man regard us in this manner as servants, that's under roar, as a galley slave of Christ, and stewards of the mysteries of God. Stewards, oikonomos, oikos house, nomos manager. And so the New Testament times, that word was used for somebody who managed the household affairs. And so similar very much to the word servant, but different to um, it would have been a person who was a slave promoted to that position. It could have been a free man hired to do it. Either way, it's a responsibility that he has to manage the house. Now, we know in general, and this is important, all believers are stewards. Okay, 1 Peter 4.10, as each one has received a special gift, here it is, employ it, employ it in serving, that's the verb diakoneo, that's where we get our word for the office, deacon, okay? But here it just means attending to. So as each one has received a special gift, employ it in attending to one another as a good, mark this, steward. Oikonomos, of what? What is each believer told to be a good manager of? The manifold grace of God. So everyone is required to be a good steward, Okay somebody who manages the household well. So in the household, as we're talking about the church, 
you've been given spiritual gifts, okay? And those spiritual gifts are to be used to, to attend to one another. We've been talking about this at length, haven't we? We talked about it in the past chapter, um, how in the earlier paragraphs that you are to serve one another in comforting, okay? That as you've been comforted, comfort, and as you comfort one another, you produce patient endurance and, and, uh, and hope and, and uh, proven character. And so, you know, again, we can see that very small snapshot just early passages, but to a greater degree, as we looked earlier in 1 Corinthians, you've each been given a gift according to your faith, right? And, and that gift has different outcomes and different ministries and all of that, right? And so as a good steward, each one's received a special gift. So employ it in serving the ekoneo, in serving, attend to one another as a good steward. See, so God's given resources to each believer in the form of spiritual gifts. When you use your spiritual gift in the church to attend to one another, you're being a good steward. And catch this, beloved, I'm going to pause before I say it, and that leads to a clear conscience. Okay? Again, as you evaluate the ministry that you're going to do, if you're going to stand before the Lord with a clear conscience, then you're going to have to do that, right? And that's going to lead to a clear conscience because you haven't violated what the Lord has told you to do and your conscience is agreeing with it's being informed by the word of God and you're acting on it. So you're not creating a callous there. Many of you, you've been given a, a special gift and you're not serving one another with it. You're not serving anybody with it, but just yourself. See? And so you're... You're either searing that conscience or you're rubbing a callus on it because it's witnessing that you're supposed to be serving and maybe it already has and you haven't acted on it. So see, then you need to start acting on that and then you can have a clear conscience. Do you understand? That's how that works, see? And Paul says then, regard us this way. I'm an under rower and a manager of the goods God wants me to dispense to the house I'm supposed to take care of. I have a clear conscience, Paul says, but not because I did everything you wanted me to do and everything you expected me to do but what the Lord wanted me to do, and what are God's goods, see? What are they to dispense? And this fills in the substance, okay? So, let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ, as stewards of the, what? Mysteries of God. And that's the word for something that was hidden, but now is revealed. So, the gospel was a mystery, now revealed, Matthew 13, 11, right? And so, that's what Paul is saying about himself. He says, I'm an under rower and I'm a manager of the household and, and God has deposited his word, his, his resources. And so I'm supposed to take those and use those to minister to the house. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.12, he says, for our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience that in holiness and godly sincerity, and here it is, here's the one that relates to what we just said, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God. We've conducted ourselves in the world and especially towards you. Paul says, when I think over my ministry to you, I knew what I was supposed to do, and my conscience is clear because I did just that. See, I simply say, God has called me to take his word and pass it out to his people. I'm not a false teacher, Paul says. I've been entrusted with the resources of his word, and I've administered to them. That's all. I've and I've administered them, and that's all, see. And as I think about every other minister, including me, the thing I want to do is make sure I don't mess that up on the way, see? And when you teach that class or whatever it is, you want to make sure you take the word of God just like it was delivered and you do the work that you need to do so that when you deliver that, you haven't changed that in any way in order to make it more relevant or somehow connect with people what it meant to the first readers, what it still means now. And when you deliver that to them, you can maybe make some applications, but you don't change it, see? And that's what you want to make sure you don't do is mess that up. 
just like it comes out of the kitchen, it gets delivered right to the, people, to the table of the people in the household that you serve, see? And Paul says, in that respect, I have a clear conscience. I've done exactly what I was supposed to do. Just get it to you the way God intended for it to be delivered. The hard stuff, the joyful stuff, uh, the teaching, the reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness, 1 Timothy 3.16. The whole counsel, whatever it is, however you come to it, it just gets delivered, see? God's mysteries revealed to his church through his word, and that word is given so that you will be adequate for every good work, see? So it's very important that we get it because you have work to do that I won't be able to do, and you have ministries that I'm not going to have, and you, but you'll be adequate for all those ministries to the extent that I do the job I'm supposed to do, and of course you are informing your own conscience and your mind by the word of God and by the Holy Spirit in control of you, okay? Paul said in Acts 20, 20, you know how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly from house to house. How did he know what was profitable? How, how do I know what's profitable? Well, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is inspired by God and is, same word, profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. The absence of that is why we have so many Christians that are spiritually malnourished, see, in churches across the world. There are many under rowers who want it to be about them. So they're not taking the dinner as it's prepared by the Lord and delivering it to the people. They're doing all kinds of stuff with it to try to make it more palatable. See, that's the problem. See, there are many stewards who are not taking care to give out the word. See, and they call it preaching the word. But it really isn't preaching the word. It's just entertainment. See, three points in a poem, a catchy story or two or whatever, you know, some attention grabbing video and their own thoughts. Because it's easy to bend and twist the word of God into saying what you want to talk about. And I call that using the word instead of teaching the word. And as you think about and you listen to what's going on, try to discern between the two. Okay, when the person's just talking about what they want to talk about and once, once in a while they grab a verse that somehow uh, connects to something that they said, that's when you're using the word. But when you're going verse by verse through it, word by word through it, you're teaching the word. What does the word say? What does it mean by what it says? And how does that apply to me? See, that's the difference, okay? So, so and that's what, as ministers, you don't want to mess that up. See, that's, the, God's people were made for God's word, and that's what you want to deliver to them. Pure. See, that's, that's, uh, that's why Paul says what he says in verse 2, you know, now let's look at it. That, this is the characteristic of a pastor. This is the correct criteria Paul uses and wants them to use. And this is the third evaluation of how he does it and how he does the first two. This is how he can have a clear conscience. Look at verse 2. He says this. In this case, moreover, it's required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. Trustworthy. So Paul looks at his own ministry in verse 1 and he says, this is the ministry we have when you're evaluating us start here. If you want to know why I can say I have confidence, I have, I can boast in my conscience is clear before you, this is where you need to look. And this next statement, which gives us a characteristic of a minister, helps them to look at what's going on. In other words, if the ministers are servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God, then their ministry is evaluated that way. Are they doing that? See, that's how it's evaluated. Is that what they're doing? In this case, what case? In the case of a steward giving out the resources God supplied through his word to be given to his church, the case of Paul's conscience that we'll see in a moment, moreover, in this case, moreover, it's required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. Trustworthy means, he, has he been doing this? That's the question. 
as his primary ministry to the church as unto Christ in order to be found faithful. Is he just giving out the word? He's found trustworthy if he's just taking it like it was given and putting it out on the table, see? And doing that and managing the house in that way, see? Here's the deal. It doesn't say it's required of stewards that a man be found brilliant, okay? It doesn't say it is, in this case, it's appointed or required of stewards that a man be found educated or have a great personality or be entertaining. It doesn't say that. That's why they said, you know, Paul's letters are great, but man, when he comes, ooh. Paul says, that makes no difference to me whatsoever. It's, you know, the Lord hasn't appointed that I be found fun for you. Okay? Faithful. Stewards that you don't have to watch. That's what that means. You're just doing what they're supposed to do. When you appoint a steward for your house in, in ancient times, you wanted somebody who was trustworthy. Not going to rip you off. Okay? Not going to give you something that he shouldn't be giving you. And so later in 2 Corinthians 10.10 10, then, when the church says, for they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech is contemptible, he can say, just eight verses later, it's not he who commends himself that's approved, but he whom the Lord commends is approved. Now Paul says, I have a clear conscience on that because I know what he expects me to do. It's very simple. Paul said in Timothy, in 2 Timothy 2.15, he says, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. In order for a pastor to fulfill what Paul told Timothy to do, and for a pastor to present himself approved to God with no shame, in order for Paul to be able to boast of a clear conscience, as there are continuing issues here in 2 Corinthians, and he must explain himself and his actions, he'll have to be diligent to accurately handle the word of truth. That's so important. So the minister is Christ's under rower and he's a steward. No big thing. Okay? There's no, there's no big thing about that. Just a steward and a servant. And, and he's a galley slave and he doesn't deserve any glory. He just deserves discipline if he doesn't do what he was supposed to do. And Paul's going to come back to the same thing in our current study in 2 Corinthians. In two, chapter 2, verse 17, he continues to address this issue of being accused as a false teacher. For we, he says... And we're going to get to this just in a couple of weeks. For we are not like many peddling the word of God. See, Paul's right on top of this, okay? This is his main thing. Listen, you're a steward and a servant of the resources God has given. That's your job. And you're supposed to be found faithful to do it. And Paul says, I can boast because I did exactly that. And he says, we're not like many peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the light of, of God, in the sight of God. Peddling, this, that's a terrible word. Capel UO, that's, um, that is a, um, it describes somebody, well, let's just say it, it's the opposite of a faithful steward of the mysteries of God. In the New Testament, it describes a huckster, an innkeeper, somebody who works in the marketplace. Hey, come over here, come over here, come over here look at this, you know, want to watch? That, you know, that kind of thing. See, a, a, a true merchant, emporos, that's not the word used here, but we're not peddlers like many, he says. And they'd get, you know, they would just do whatever they had to do to get gain by dealing in anything they could deal in. So, you know, 2 Corinthians 4.1, and you can see by this next letter, this is an important issue. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we receive mercy, we have renounced the hidden things because of shame, not walking in craftiness. Here it is again. Uh, Paul can't, Paul is really on top of this because they accused him of being a false teacher. And he's like, I'm not a false 
not a false teacher. I have given you exactly what the Lord's given me. So he has to, he brings it up again. He says, walking in craftiness. Here it is, adulterating. So before it's peddling the word of God, now it's adulterating the word of God. But by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. You know, the guy who tries to, to make the word say what he wants it to say, or he reads a verse and then says what he wanted to say without continuing in the verse again. See, that's adulterating the word of God. See, the guy who pastors it this way is a peddler. He's not a trustworthy servant, and God wants out of his ministers that they be found trustworthy. And what's trustworthy mean? I mean, just doing what God has said to do. What did God say to do? Dispense the mysteries. Dispense them. Just like I gave them, put them out. Don't peddle it. Don't adulterate it. Just give it out, just like it is. Now look at verse 3, because that really ties us to 2 Corinthians 1.12. And Paul is confident boasting. So here's, here's when Paul first brought this into the church. I'm sure this was difficult, 1 Corinthians uh, um, 4.3, he says, but to me, it's a very small thing that I may be examined by you. He just wants them to know up front, listen, your, your expectations of me, whatever they may be, um, and, and they certainly may be valid in your mind, and certainly they, they may be good things to do. I mean, it's not, he's not, you know, looking at them saying, you know, hey, this, this is all bad. He's not saying that. He's just saying, listen, you know, it's a very small thing that I be examined by you. Your expectations of me are not the first thing on my priority list, okay? It's very small or by any other human court. And this obviously didn't sit well with the, with the church in Corinth, which is why Paul calls on it again in our current letter. But Paul knew how they were evaluating him. You know, he's a liar, he's got an agenda, he's a false teacher. So understand Paul, see? In other words, Paul says, if you're going to evaluate me, then it has to be he's an underrower of Christ, he's a steward of the word of God, and he's faithful in those things. See? So that's why he says, it's a very small thing that I'd be examined by you or by any human court. You know, if you're going to do it with human wisdom, in immature fleshliness, then it's a very small thing. And that word examined, anacrino, it has to do with a cross-examination by someone, okay? So it's a court term. And uh, so it appears to have an application as it relates to Paul's attitude about their cross-examination of him. Oh, so why did you do this? And well, how come you didn't do that? And why aren't you like Apollos? And how come you didn't do, you know, this like Peter did? And, and Jesus did this, and you didn't do this. And, you know, this whole cross-examination, it's like, that makes very little difference to me, what you have to say. Paul's using himself, listen, as an example of how ministers should think about what people think. That's, how it come, that's what really what it comes down to, see? Because every minister has to fight this personal battle, whether it's negative or positive. And if you've ministered, you know this. Uh, the human side wants to hear, wow, you're terrific. And we don't want to hear, oh my word, you stink. Right? We're, we're concerned about both those things. We have to fight that battle all the time. You have to fight it early in your ministry, and you have to continue fighting it because it can be like this backwards way of a, a backslap on your back. Good job, Parker, because everybody says, oh, I really like that sermon. And if they don't say that, it's like, oh, man, it must have been terrible. Instead of just, you're a steward and a servant of the mysteries of Christ, that's it. You just deliver it, see? And the Lord does with it whatever he wants, and you don't know what he's doing in the church at any particular time, see? He may be chastening, he may be encouraging, he may be building up, he may be bringing people to salvation. He's doing all kinds of stuff, see? And you just deliver the word of God and then he puts it to work, see? And so the issue really is, when it comes right down to it, as Paul presents it to us, it shouldn't matter what's said. When it really comes right down to it. Because there's just a few things, and your conscience can be clear if you're doing those things as you should, see? And your, your heart's being informed by the word of God and the Holy Spirit's at, at work and you haven't, you haven't uh, quenched that spirit. You know, pastors are really good at building up their own egos. So is everybody else, okay? We're not, we're not uh, you know, immune from that. 
And we're also really good at negative evaluation of themselves, especially Mondays, right, John? Especially Mondays. Mondays are tough for those in the ministry because you just think back and you think, man, I, that, that completely stunk, and that did not come out like I wanted it to, and I'm sure that was just a waste. And Paul says that the minister has to be free of the controlling influences of what other people think and what he thinks, both positive and negative. See, his outlook has to be informed by the word of God, see, not by his own feelings. Witnessing through the Holy Spirit. What does the word of God say? Did I give that out as I should? Have I been a good servant, a steward, faithful? That's what it comes down to. And that's not easy to come by. So we just go back to what Paul says, listen, I, can, I have a clear conscience, I can boast, because I did what I was supposed to be, okay? And it really is a very small thing to be examined by you in a human court, when it comes right down to it. And why didn't he have to examine himself? And let's look at verse 4 and then finish up, because we're at the end. And this is the conscience part. Here, verse 4, he says, For I'm conscious of nothing, conscious of nothing against myself, Yet I'm not by this acquitted. Uh, that's not the final word, okay? But the one who examines me is the Lord. Just like he said in 2 Corinthians 1.12, my conscience is clear, see? But they've heard this before because Paul said it back in this other letter, see? Paul says, I'm doing the things God's given me to do, and Paul gives them the guidelines then in the passage we're looking at, see? But the one who examines me, he says, is the Lord. And I'm not worried about what you think, Paul says, I'm an under rower and a galley slave of Christ, and I'm a steward of the mysteries of God. And to that end, he says, I relay those things well and consistently, just as they come out of the kitchen and I serve them, and to that end, I'll be judged. So Paul had a clear conscience. The Lord's going to judge me on how I did that. He knew what he was supposed to do. He'd rebuked and corrected this church. He'd gone through all kinds of pains to attempt to set it straight. He was abused by them constantly. He served all kinds of things for the ministry's sake so he can say... Regardless of all of that, you can say in 2 Corinthians 1.12, our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience that in holiness and godly sincerity and not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world, especially toward you. What a great thing to aspire to. Wouldn't you agree? What is informing your mind as you do your ministry? What words are you saying as you begin to do your ministry work uh, to yourself? What things are being talked about? What's that conversation like? Are you letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom? Listen, if you're trying to do ministry and you're not letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, you are in big trouble and you're going to have a very difficult time saying, my conscience is clear. Because if the word of Christ is dwelling with you richly in all wisdom, you can conduct yourself in holiness and godly sincerity in the grace of God. So is your conscience clear? Or do you mess it up and you don't fix it? See? Do you go against it and then you don't go back and repent and tell the Lord what you did was wrong and ask him to resensitize your conscience? See, you say things you, don't, you shouldn't say and you don't repair the damage. See? You just count on somebody else forgiving you and moving on. You don't go to them and seek out their, their, uh, their forgiveness. And maybe you don't even recognize there's a problem because you're so used to responding or acting in a certain way and your sins are camouflaged and your conscience has been calloused. See? So we need the word of God, the word of Christ dwelling in us richly. We need to ask God to turn our conscience back on again, maybe. 
obviously, as we looked at this today, very important part, how you do the ministry that God has for you. Okay, let's bow and be dismissed in prayer. Lord, we thank you today for a, a time together. We thank you for the fellowship of the saints, which is so sweet. We thank you for our musical worship today, which was so moving to me, I'm sure to many others, as we think about our own sin and we think about uh, your son's satisfaction of that sin and we own that sin. It, it's part of the reason he was crucified. Thank you that you have, in your grace, drawn us to you. Help us to understand repentance and confession and faith and forgiveness and righteousness, which now are ours. And Father, we thank you today for this understanding of conscience. And Lord, thank you that Paul is so clear about how that works and why it's important. And he uses it so many times to defend his ministry. And I think at this point in the modern church, we would just say, well, that's so subjective. And yet Paul calls on very concrete foundational things that are part of what he was supposed to do. And in those things, he could say, my conscience is clear. Not that uh, he did everything they asked him to do or expected him to do or whatever it was, but that he had done exactly what the Lord wanted him to do as an under or as a galley slave and a servant. And so, Father, I pray that you'll help us as we do our ministry, help me as I do mine, to be mindful of these very uh, few things that are of utmost importance, those things by which you will call me into account, as First Peter 5 says. And Father, I pray that uh, as, we, as we consider ministries to do, uh, Lord, I pray that we'll, not, uh, we'll realize that each of us, 1 Peter 4, has, has been required to be a good steward. We've each been given spiritual gifts. We each have uh, things that we can do inside the church to bless the church and benefit it, to minister, uh, to serve one another. Attend to is the word. Attend to one another. Lord, help us to be about that one another. Help us not to be sitting on the sidelines, kind of watching what's going on, wondering where we should get plugged in, but instead find a place where we can get started. We might be found good stewards and have, of course, a clear conscience then in that respect. Lord, we, we give you uh, so much glory. You're worthy. Faithful are you, righteous. Let your kingdom come and your will be done, Father, in us. And we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, whom we love and we long to see. And as good servants, wait and serve until he comes. We pray this in his name and all God's people said.